how do you tell a big story? You know, growing up, uh, my favorite thing when my mom, she had a 1982 Buick Park Avenue, and there was an eight-track cassette stuck in the stereo of this Park Avenue, uh, and it was Jerry Clower. I feel like I learned a lot about storytelling from listening to Jerry Clower as a kid, but how do you tell a great big story? There's this classic line, you've probably heard it in movies and fairy tales, where someone says, once upon a time. I also heard once that the southern version of that story was, you're not going to believe this one. But how do you tell a big story? Luke, the writer of the gospel of his name, was a follower of Jesus who was part of Paul's early ministry. Uh, he was not a disciple. And his gospel, uh, uh, Luke was most likely a Gentile, and his gospel, uh, and he wrote both Luke and the book of Acts, He's telling the story of Jesus and the story of the church to a man named Theophilus. In the beginning of Luke, what Luke tells the reader is, all of these things have been fulfilled. Luke was a doctor. Luke was focused on truth and not telling a specific narrative like John was. We spent seven weeks talking about John and his gospel. We just finished that last Sunday. But Luke spends his time trying to transmit truth. He's telling a big story. And he can start with details, or he can start with geography. He can start with a list of names like Matthew does in his gospel. John started his gospel telling a reworking of Genesis 1. Uh, Mark tells his gospel talking about John the Baptist. That's how they all start. But Luke does something different. Luke starts off telling a story about two forgotten people. A man named Zechariah and a woman named Elizabeth. That's how Luke starts telling the Jesus story for us. And so let's open up our Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And let's see how Luke begins his great big story. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as a priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of people were praying outside and then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, even before his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of, the Israel, of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before them to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, 
How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. In those days after his wife Elizabeth conceived, for five months she remained in seclusion, and she said, This is what the Lord has done for me when He looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is a great big story. And for, for, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's a story about waiting well. And that's what I want us to think about today. What does it mean to wait well? Waiting is both an Advent theme and a Christmas theme. Waiting, I think, especially for children, waiting is learned at Christmas. You know, we see presents under a tree for, for weeks sometimes. Now, we go back to school from Thanksgiving break, and we know just a couple of more weeks, and I get the big break. You know, eagerly anticipating those, those two weeks off. I, I don't know how well I waited as a child. I don't think I probably waited very well at all. But when we think about waiting in Advent, we look to the classic passages of Scripture about waiting. I love Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 1. Uh, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. These are the first words in Handel's Messiah. Comfort my people, comfort. What does it mean to wait well? How do we, how do we seek and find comfort when we are in an uncomfortable place? To wait is to have hope in what is to come, to transfer our anxiety to the Lord, and to trust in that act. And that's the story of these two people, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story of this angelic encounter, but also the story of how it was this moment where God began to put things in place. Our series this Advent is called The Characters of Christmas. And we've got a couple of characters this week. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these characters and, and see how they were en encountering and anticipating and hoping and waiting on the coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah is an elderly priest of Israel. Elizabeth, his wife, is descended from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. They're from good families, good people, good stock, high expectations. Zechariah is part of the line of priests that serve in the temple. Scripture tells us they're righteous and that they are blameless. It's kind of code words here for these are the kind of people you should be looking up to. These are the kind of people we should all be aware of. These kinds of people are rare. But we also find out that they are barren unable to have children. And this is a giant shame to a Jewish person in the first century. A huge shame. Religious culture would have almost assumed them to have been deep sinners because of this barrenness. 
Scripture is telling a great big story here. A first century reader, upon hearing this, would automatically feel the tension. There's a question to be asked almost immediately. Are these people righteous or are they horrible sinners? Because the two things can't exist together. The priests held a weekly rotation twice a year, serving in the temple of Jerusalem. Zechariah would have traveled there to serve. Uh, There's many priestly towns around Jerusalem where they would live throughout the year and they would travel into Jerusalem to serve. You know, there's the story of the Good Samaritan, of the priests and the Levite who keep passing by on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho was one of these priestly towns that the priests lived in. And at this particular day, we found Zechariah actually at the pinnacle of his career. A priest would only be allowed to go into the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice and light the incense once during their life. It was a special day, a a, a big day. And Zechariah's age and his shame of being childless are also another tension point that's here. Was Zechariah not selected for this because he was extremely old? Or was he not selected for this because of his shame? You know, were people debating, should he even be allowed to go do this? You know, a quick calculation that I made this week, just trying to see, well, how many times was he passed over for this? You know, assuming, you know, Scripture is using the language that he is elderly. Like, he's not just middle-aged or not just a little bit old. Like, he is elderly. Priests begin their service at around age 20. And so I just kind of did some quick math and realized that he probably was passed over around 700 times to get to go do this. This was supposed to be one of the best days of his life. To go offer the incense at the time of sacrifice for the sake of all of God's people. And after offering this incense, uh, his role was to come outside and for all the people gathered in the courtyard of the temple to pronounce a blessing upon them. And this happened every single day, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. But something different happened this day. The other character we meet in this story is the angel Gabriel. An angel of God, he shows up in a few places in the Old Testament, mainly to Daniel in that book. Gabriel always, every time Gabriel shows up in Scripture, he always carries a message about restoration, and about the Messiah to come. Gabriel is also interacting with other characters here in Luke's Gospel. He's the one who comes to Elizabeth to tell her what's going on. He's the one who comes to Mary to tell her what is going on. Gabriel shows up to talk about the Messiah. That's what Gabriel does. And what we see in this story is Zechariah's own struggle with the idea of waiting well. Gabriel tells him, your prayers have been answered. And we don't see the laboring of prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth about this childlessness, but it's clearly happening. And with those prayers, I think there are probably other prayers that are related. You know, for others to see them as righteous. For for them to find healing over the sense of shame that they culturally carry because of not having children. Maybe prayers for them to not hear the words that are whispered around them. 
I think there are a lot of prayers going on when Gabriel says your prayers have been answered. There's probably many, many, many different related prayers about this situation. They've been praying for a long time. But don't we all have these secret prayers? You know, we have the big ones. We've got the ones we'll raise our hand on Sunday. Hey, Chad, we need to pray about this. Put this on the prayer list. But how much stuff do you have that you, want, you don't want to put on that prayer list? What are those prayers we carry in our heart that we might be embarrassed about or those prayers that we're worried about or those prayers that seem you know, so deeply personal the only people we can tell them to might be the Lord. Those prayers that we cannot vocalize, sometimes the pain and the hurt or the questions that we've been carrying for years or for our whole life. And Zechariah, he's not talking back here. I think he's, but he's dealing with fear. Funny thing in Luke, Gabriel always has to tell people to not fear. But fear doesn't mean scared. Fear is this feeling of massiveness overtaking you when you first see something and you learn how big something can be and how much bigger it is than you and how much you cannot control this. The image I had in my mind is, you know, a few months back, Meredith and I went and saw the movie Oppenheimer. Anybody else see Oppenheimer? It's a story about the, the scientist that developed the, the first atomic bomb and how he immensely became deeply fearful because he realized this is a power that's beyond human capacity and can we even handle this? And I, I really would like to think that when we see the glory of God, in the ways that these people are seeing it. Sometimes we might be seeing things we don't want to see. Or as I've heard people say before, sometimes God has a veil over our eyes where we can't see what's going on around us because we could not handle it. These people are encountering the angel Gabriel. Potentially not just seeing the announcement the Messiah is coming, but then realizing I have a place in this, and my place is in the story, the great big story of all of humanity. They might be seeing why we need a Messiah. Just openings into the world of God, completely and holy. But Gabriel also told Zechariah that his waiting was over that he had waited well, and he was not, not just him about to personally experience the benefit of this waiting, but the whole world, living and eternity, was about to experience the blessing of his waiting. This child will be named John. John the Baptist, the anticipated forerunner of the Messiah, the first step in this messianic plan that had been prophesied for hundreds of years. Zechariah and Elizabeth had waited well. So how do we look at their story of waiting well? And how do we wait well this Advent season, 2,000 years later? You know, I think Advent, it is a season to learn to wait well. It's about anticipation. It's about, you know, 40 days for us to practice this posture of waiting and being excited. And we get to do all this and we get to try to wait well. Friends, I, 
a lot of churches started Advent last Sunday because it was cleaner. We're used to it the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. You know, this year in the church calendar, it's kind of awkward. The fourth Sunday of Advent is also Christmas Eve. You know, we're also joking cultural. You know, the second the Halloween candy's out, they're putting the Christmas decorations in. You know, Meredith and I went and bought our Christmas tree last night after dinner. I thought, I was still thinking it's a little bit too early. I need Advent to happen. I need to get there first. I've got my tradition. I've got my things that I do. I did it this morning. I'm sitting there re- doing my daily prayers, and I, I fire up Handel's Messiah. I've got to listen to Handel's Messiah. For, and after I get done with that, and I, I did it this morning on the drive to church. You know, that's the holy side of Advent for me. I've got to listen to Handel's Messiah, the, the more, I don't want to call it secular, the more cultural side of the Christmas season for me is I have to listen to Robert L. Keane's song, Merry Christmas from the Family. It's my favorite country Christmas song. I have these things I wait to do, and I, I, the older I get, I've, I was never been a patient person. I've never been described as patient. Like, I always have to get a snack to eat while I'm at the grocery store. <laughs> Is anybody else a grocery store snacker? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I've, learned, I've learned to be patient because of Advent. Like, and this year, for some reason, it's like I'm holding on, I'm holding on, I'm holding on. Because there's something about waiting in this season. Because we know that good things are coming. So how do we wait well? Two quick things, that's it. First, I think we should try to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. I think we should be prayerfully waiting. I think we should be speaking to God. I think we should be honest, not just about these immediate, tangible things that we are waiting for but also offering up our prayers and our hopes and our frustrations and our pains. We need to practice hope. I think there's something really strong about us praying for something for a long time. We want the quick. We want the immediate. I think Advent sometimes is a way for us to learn, I'm going to pray for things steadfastly. That biblical posture of waiting on God of being hopeful. Hope's a funny thing. And hope's related to waiting well. Hope is a declaration that we don't just accept the pains that we feel in this life, that that, that this is not just the way it has to be. For us to hope means that we're willing uh, to learn to be comfortable in God's plan. It's all right for us to be less than content when we know we're in a less than ideal state that we don't see this ideal state as acceptable, this less than ideal state as acceptable. We choose to place our energy and our mind in the hope of what God has promised. Of us learning to say, Lord, teach me patience because I know what I am learning in this moment is more valuable than what I'm going to get on the other side. That you make me stronger in my patience, and in my waiting. I like to think that the patience and the waiting and the prayers are what made Zechariah and Elizabeth righteous and blameless. This pinnacle of holiness to be looked towards to. The second thing we do is that we realize the power of the promised Christ. It's it's part of the prophecy given by Gabriel to Zechariah. Twice in this passage it uses the word turn. 
to talk about John the Baptist's future ministry. To turn means to repent. That's all it is in Scripture. We, we want to look in the Greek, what does repentance mean? It literally means to turn, a physical action point. We know the call of John the Baptist, we read it in the opening of Mark, is to prepare a way through the wilderness, to strengthen the roads, to push down the mountains. And he's telling us to do that. That we are clearing these things out. We are making the road straight for God to come to us. And that takes some turning. Advent's also a time of us celebrating our own hearts being reoriented to the coming of Christ. Saying, you know, yeah, I've allowed some things to be in my life this last year, and, and I, I actually want to start it fresh. You know, second thing, do you realize that Advent is the beginning of the Christian year? In some ways, today is our New Year's Day. The year begins with Jesus. We've got a month in advance to when other folks start talking about change, don't we? I think that period of silence that Zechariah had to spend those nine months while they were waiting for this child to be born, I kind of think that might have been a time of repentance. Some ways of, of Zechariah saying, Lord, I'm sorry I did not recognize you when you came. I'm sorry I did not believe you immediately. I'm sorry that I had questions. But this actually kind of makes me feel a little bit better. Zechariah didn't believe 100% in himself, and sometimes we don't believe in ourselves, do we? We talk about that sort of thing as though that's a problem you get sorted out when you're 14 years old. But friends, at 43, I'll tell you right now, sometimes I don't feel like I'm adequate. Does anybody else? Sometimes it means we've accepted the things we've allowed to draw us away from the presence of Christ. And to step into Advent means stepping into these new things that Jesus wants us to do. And we don't have to wait for that. We can accept that. We can turn. We can make those conscious 180s. We can embody gratitude and giving. We realize this Christmas cheer that we hear about, and a lot of times, sometimes what that just is, is a call to be the goodness of God to other people. To say, Jesus is here. I don't have anything to worry about. That's how I'm going to choose to live. You know, these, they're not easy answers for why we have to practice waiting at times. But there are also always good answers for why we have to learn to practice waiting at these times. We wait because we know Jesus is coming soon. We wait because He came the first time and He's going to come a second time. He promised to come back. We can take on this posture of Zechariah and Elizabeth by saying, Lord, we're waiting on You. We know it's going to happen. Let's just let us wait well while we are here. Amen. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we thank You first for waiting on us.